Welcome to the Stephen Shields Radio Show. I've got Houston Dunleavy on. How are you, Houston? Well, thank you, Stephen. How's yourself? Good. Happy New Year to you, Houston. Uh, what are you up to Happy for Year, 2021? Uh, immediately, I'm sort of trying to move into a new place to live. Um, that's probably the next, probably the biggest thing. Everything else goes on the back burner when you're moving house. Mm. Uh, but there are several several big projects happening, hopefully happening this year, um, including uh, a lot of recording of, mm-hmm. of work of mine. Uh, all my I've got a project to, to record all my piano music, a project to record all of my music involving flute, mm-hmm. and uh, a new work which I'm currently working on, the concerto for euphonium and and brass band, which so how, uh, is, how is is still is still on the boiler. How long does it take for you to uh, prepare these concertos? Oh, I did. Sure, it's like how long is a piece of string? Uh, it depends on the, the the kind of piece it is, and and the, you know how complex I want to make it, how much spare time I've got, or how much time I make for it. Mm. For example, the, my first sort of major concerto was way back in the nineteen nineties. I was actually asked to write it in nineteen ninety five. And I finished it in 1999. Wow! And I wasn't years. that I, it wasn't that it sat in the back burner for four years. I was mm. tinkering at it for all that time. Mm. There were other things involved, such as the fact that the the soloist changed, and the so because the first one said I, I can't play that, the second one said oh, I can, mm. and uh, so I had to keep tinkering around. And then the uh, the date kept changing, and then we kept wanting to do more things with it. And so it took four years mm. to get that from the first note to the, the concert hall. This another one for it's a far less of a of a, was a hall was my viola concerto. The first viola concerto took relatively no time at all compared to that. But the main problem with that was trying to find people who'd actually perform it because it was for an interesting, interesting ensemble. Mm. Um, in that it was a, a viola and all woodwinds. Mm. There was, um, there's, there's not a lot of wind, wind bands out there that would think about having a guest violist. Mm. Um, so the piece, although it took a couple of years to get up, it, in fact, only took four to six months to write. And then once we got it on the stage and, and so on with a, a couple of little things we could tinker with it after the premiere, which we did. Mm. And uh, when it was finally, I mean, it was clearly worth it because when it was finally recorded it won a latin grammy nomination for the recording and then won a, an award in south america for best classical composition mm. and that was that was all long after the fact of, of, of having actually done the piece and put it out there mm. uh, these other things came up um that that said well done these are good it's a good piece you know mm. um this one the 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 um Euphonium Concerto, it came up really because of COVID. There was a chance to do something different. And uh, when I happened to be chatting to a, uh, a friend who's a youth virtuoso euphonium player, he said, Dumb, write me one. And so um, I'm, I'm about, I finished the first movement, and this moving house and things like that tends to stop you mm. from writing music. <laughs> um, that and the fact that you have to do other work to try and um, keep body and soul together when you're a performing artist 
Mm. You have to do other things that have done a lot of online teaching mm. this year, the last six to 12 months, and that's kept me uh, in, in beer and Skittles to get the rent going. But at the same time, you're still thinking it's a great deal of work to be done on this piece. It's always in the back of your mind. So, you know, 10 o'clock at night, you might think, oh, I've got an hour before I have to go to bed. I'll put a few bars of this together. And then you look at it next time you think, oh, what load of rubbish was that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I shall never, I shall never do this at 11 o'clock at night again. Um, and um, yeah. and it, it's just, it's just the, the way you are, the way you, you, you I tend, I tend to work best in the morning. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if I'm still uh, composing late at night, normally I'd say about 60% of that gets trashed the following day. I, I just, I hear it again and go, oh no, what was I thinking? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I suppose another way of looking at it is you find half a dozen different ways not to write the piece, uh, half a dozen things not to put in there, like Edison, um, whatever, how many pieces of material he used in order to try and get the filament for the bulb, 900 and something. Mm. It wasn't until he got to his thousandth and something that he got tungsten. And uh, this is what don't you feel like it was a waste of time? Just no, no, I found out 987 ways not to do it. So, mm. so that's kind of like you have to look at trial and error and experiment that way. And all pieces are for me, some there's an experiment, experimental element to all pieces, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, when you're writing a uh, concerto, Houston, uh, do you make it as hard as possible? Or do you want to make it playable or? Enjoyable. Uh, the answer is C. C. Both of the above. Um, a concerto does does imply the fact that it's a difficult work. Mm -hmm. I mean that 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 it's a it's a, a work for somebody who's mastered the instrument. Um, however, I learned from the tuba concerto that there are just some things you just don't push. Mm. Um, as a friend of the friend of mine who actually finally premiered it said, "This piece has it everything in it a tuba can do." and far more than many of us want to <laughs> um it's a big work mm. it's a big work the viola concerto on the other hand had a lot more focus mm. about what was in it and i think that created a, a a work where it sounds and it is difficult but because i've i made a study of the instrument more i don't play viola but i know plenty of people who do um trying to create a work that sits under the fingers as, as, as musicians say, mm. but still can be difficult and challenging mm. Mm. Uh, is, is where I'm at. I mean, sometimes, you know, getting, getting a player to, to do something that's off the, out of their training is difficult, even if it's something very simple. Um, it's not just in a concerto, but for example, my, my, one of my, my short string quartet, Absence, asks the players to sing. Uh, they play a, a chord and they stop playing, but they keep singing the, 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 the note they just played. Mm. So it's a kind of strange echo that comes back as a voice. Mm. And that freaked out a few players. It really does, because the reason a lot of players become players, instrumentalists, is they don't fancy that they have a good voice or they don't like singing. But they still want to make music. Um, so there was there was that element, and then there are others. Just simply saying something 
making a noise other than with the instrument is difficult. Mm. Uh, the solo percussion piece that requires the percussionist to, to make vocal noises. And the first person who 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 I showed it to freaked out. Said, "No, no, I can't do this." And it was just ha, oh, mm. hey, that sort of sound. And she, no, that was not that was not in uh, that person's. Um, playing vocabulary, yet that person was a new music specialist. Mm. So you, it, it, a lot of it depends on, on, on the kind of person. What's difficult for some people is run of the mill for others. Mm. And so the concept of difficulty is in fact, I think, um, a kind of a, they keep, the, the goalposts keep moving as to how to define that. The reason why I brought that up, Houston, because I'm a clarinetist and we, we play mm -hmm. the Weber clarinet concerto and it was the Mozart, yeah. but I always found the Weber was uh, more difficult to play with a lot of the polyrhythms going on. Um, yeah, and also, yeah, that's true. And, and also the fact that it's in a different key to the Mozart. The Mozart is, is meant to be on, played on an A clarinet, so you play it in C major. Mm. Um, and also it, it was a simpler instrument back in Mozart's day. Mm. By the time Weber came along, there was a lot more plumbing, mm. and you could play in a lot more keys, and the techniques had developed on the instrument. I mean, even something like the posthumous uh, uh, Weber um, theme and variations is very different to the theme and variations at the at the the last movement of the Mozart clarinet quintet. Mm. Both great works, but the fact that one of them really requires a lot more finger busting than the other is because the instrument themselves allowed you to do more finger busting mm. and uh you know the mozart second movement is of the concerto is the most one of the most sublime pieces ever and similarly the second movement of the of the clarinet quintet mm. but the, that's brought about by the fact that first you've got somebody who can write opera and who could write for voice better than just about anybody you could write a tune like like nobody's business so that second movement's in there, but the, th the fact is it's a kind of a respite from the technical demands that he has to find, mm. uh, which are limited in the instrument of his time. Even, even with somebody as, as, as great as uh, Stadler, who was his, his clarinetist, who premiered those works, uh, Weber's you know, quite a young composer when he died, he's only 40. Mm. And his works you know, for, from 50 years later, 30, 40, 50 years later, so goodness knows what Weber could have done it if he lived another 20 or 30 years with the clarinet. Mm. So there are, your difficulty is, is, as I say, it's a wobbly, it's a wobbly um, concept. I think there are lots of things that affect the concept of difficulty. Mm. And I haven't even harped on, I haven't even talked about the talent of players and just how some players will take the hardest piece they can find and play it just because they can. Mm. There is a clarinet piece by Stravinsky's, the, the uh, 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 what is it, the three pieces? The solo piece. Yeah, I remember yeah. I, I was able to master the first movement, but when you get to the second and third, it just had this very, uh, very difficult fingering going on and all these atality. Yep. It's, it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And Malcolm Arnold, too, is a nightmare to play. Mm -hmm. That one I haven't played. Um, my clarinet know. career. My clarinet career didn't didn't happen to Malcolm Arnold. It stopped with the with the um, Gershwin mm. when I had an accident. Um, the Gershwin is is not is not a difficult not Gershwin. I do beg your pardon. Copeland 
sorry, yeah. I've got, I had a mind meld there. Um, Copeland Concerto was the last piece I worked on. And uh, it, 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 it's also a difficult work because of, not, but not because of its fingering necessarily, but because of the rhythmic vitality that's necessary. Mm. And, you know, I know the, the Stravinsky very well. The Stravinsky is very difficult. Um, and and you, as you, you're right in saying the second movement is, is just leaps and bounds ahead of the first. Mm. But because of, the, because of the leaps, physical leaps between the pitches and, um, and the rhythmic complexity, uh, these are all things that for some people are, are much easier and much easier to, to, to get your mind around. Mm. So, as I say, difficulty is is, is pretty wobbly. Mm. There'd be some days I'd be able to play it, and then some days I'd just muck it up, you know. And the third movement, too, was a struggle. Mm. Well, that that's how some days I'm great, some days I'm awful. Is every, is every musician's nightmare, you know. <laughs> you, you, you turn up to your lesson with your teacher, and you're playing, I don't know. I don't know if you ever played the Shalovsky Sonatina. Not yet. Uh, for clarinet, a solo, a solo work by a Polish composer from about the 40s. It's got some really finger-busting, chop-busting bits in the middle. And you'd spend, you know, the, you do all the normal things you'd normally do. You know, start in little cells and then you'd make them bigger and you'd practice those over and over again until mm. eventually you get the whole thing you get. Oh, great, I can play it the night before the lesson and the lesson you'd 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 you go to that point and it sounded like you picked the instrument up for the first time in a month mm. um if ever and your teacher would look at you practices oh incessantly two days later you come back to it and it's perfect mm. and that's just this the way i think we learn as, as humans as we we sometimes need time to to have things um going to our, our brain i mean mm listening to people like Rachel Rudick who performs a lot of performed a lot of Brian Fernieho's music particularly Cassandra's dream song and some other um, uh, solo flute music she would practice like crazy and her her method was to get up there and actually get in front of the composer and then say take this mm. and um, bam and the Fernie host said that was perfect. You now now play it faster, because mm. his his idea was he didn't want it played perfectly. He wanted the struggle. He wanted that kind mm. of tension, and uh, I think she eventually, along with a couple of others, said, well, "That's it. I don't need that in my life either." Mm. But you know, that's 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 another aesthetic toward difficulty. But difficulty is not just something that's within your own fingers. It's within your your attitude to life and you can if you're doing something that's difficult you're going to produce a different um you're going to produce a different result and a different level of tension mm. in your life than doing something you've been doing every morning for the like, past 30 years mm. making yourself a cup of coffee is not as difficult as the first time you go rock climbing mm. but if you go rock climbing often enough It'll be no harder than making yourself a cup of coffee. Mm. Oh, exactly. It's all muscle memory. Yeah. There's a lot of muscle memory, a lot of a lot of brain uh, memory too. I mean, you you your brain and your muscles are so tightly. I don't know well, not for long about physiology, but but the brain does. You don't see the music as it goes by. 
Mm. If you're memorizing it, for example, you feel, you know how it feels. Um, and I don't know if that's, I don't know which part of the brain that deals with. Mm. Did you, were you taught to play music from memory or sight read? Because when I was in my undergrad, I, I would play sight reading all the time. Didn't have time to memorize it. Um, it depends. It depends on the work. And you work, you always sight read. Um, my teacher would be, had a nice um, compromise in areas that were difficult. I mentioned the Shalovsky Sonatina before. Mm. There's a large section of it, which is just, it's just the same patterns, but it's repeated very quickly. And her idea was that you memorize that bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you memorize the bits that are really hard. Um, eventually, I think if you've been playing a piece long enough you, from memory, mm-hmm. um, you end up playing it from memory. I've conducted a lot from memory mm-hmm. without meaning to. Um, mm-hmm. I'd look down and I was 30 pages ahead. Oh, goodness me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just got so into the music. I wasn't mm-hmm. looking at the music anymore. That's very difficult to do with a new work, mm. um, but it's in stuff that's your standard repertoire. I think it's it's perfectly legit, even as wind, wind players that we were or I was. Um, but of course, sight reading is is such a tradition amongst wind and brass and string players because they're part of orchestras and they're churning music out all the time. Mm. Um, they've got to have that those reading chops. They've got to be able to read. And I, I think with our, with our instant gratification society, um, we need people who are sight readers who can say, hey, sit down and play that for me, would you? Mm-hmm. And yeah, not wanting to, 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 to ride um, or denigrate, I should say, pianists, but pianists aren't always the best sight readers in the world. And accompanists will actually not sight read a lot they'll, they'll go in woodshed for a bit and prepare and come back mm-hmm. um i think it, it the tradition of, of sight reading and, and memory is it varies mm. um but it's it's fairly it's fairly traditional for example now for especially with standard repertoire and for, for wind and brass and uh, violinists and so on to play concertos from memory especially standard concertos mm-hmm. uh, I think the greatest honor one could ever have as a living composer would be if someone came up to play one of your pieces from memory. Mm-hmm. And it, it's only happened to me once. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, but it's still, it's still an extraordinary feeling that someone's put that much effort and time into your work and played it from memory. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a big enough thrill when they play it, when it's written out and they, they sight read it or they read it. They shouldn't should be sight reading. But they read it and they play it well. But when they do it for memory, it's, mm. it's an incredible, it's an incredible thank you. When you're writing a it. concerto, do you get it commissioned or do you charge a one-off fee to do it? Because I've never written a concerto, Houston. Uh, it depends. It depends. I mean, sometimes the, the, the fee is is the recording and the, all the trappings that come with it. Mm. Um, and I think it's all part of, like like difficulty it's all it's all negotiable you get certain composers who say i only charge this amount of money per minute mm. and if there's a commission involved and that's 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 what i'll use the standard you know five hundred dollars a minute uh, it really does depend on also the capacity of people to pay um 
when you when you say to somebody, you know, three thousand dollars to write this piece, they they balk, or thirty thousand dollars if it's an opera or whatever it is, mm. they balk because that's an awful lot of money. But then you, you try to explain to them that's four months of my living, mm. a third of my year is gone to writing this piece full time. Mm. Uh, what do I do instead? If you're fortunate enough to do other things and, and have teaching position or a manage some sort of musical administrative position as I've been an academic for 30 years you have a steady income and you can be more flexible with what you charge and so on um, now that I'm mostly retired from that um, I enter into these sorts of deals a little bit more warily mm. um, my next I mean the next one is a, is for a, a YouTube advertising campaign and that's the that that's paid and that has to be a particular standard of payment mm. so sometimes you don't have any flexibility to say I'll, I'll charge you this sometimes it's it's this is the rate that's going yeah so it really for me i've, I've always been happy to be flexible yeah uh, there is i remember we spoke a couple of months ago about uh hans zimmer yeah, uh, he can charge 50, 50 grand to write something for the um, uh, the film company. I don't think he'd be charging that little. I think he'd be an awful lot more. More, um, Jesus Christ! Oh, yes. Because the way the way film can often work um, is that a huge amount of money is given to somebody. Let's say a million dollars to write a film score, mm. but out of that has to happen. All the musicians who work on it need to be paid. Um, all the studio recording fees need to, to, to be paid. So the, the, the composer at the end had, and you know, there could be uh, instrumentalists involved, there could be arrangers, conductors involved. Um, all the composers at the end will receive is what they haven't spent. But I think if, if Hans Zimmer was only making $50,000 from every movie, um, I doubt very much he'd be all that happy. I think he's making a heck of a lot more Mm. Um, and good luck to him, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, because he's, he's prolific and he writes music that is suitable. Whether you want to go down that track as a, as, a, as a film composer or not, it's entirely up to you. The money may be good, but the managerial experience is, is, is important. But also you need to shelve a little bit of your own ego at times because you're, you're writing to a request, mm -hmm. not just a commission, you're writing to a um a kind of oh, i suppose so this this music has to be sound like this or this music has to be remindful remind me of this and you receive what are called um and well they're not called demos no they're they're, they're kind of a, a rush version of, of an example let's say the, the, the composer wants something that sounds like Dvorak, uh as they often do and They'll give you a piece of doors. I can make, make your piece sound like this. So there's not a lot of originality in a lot of modern film schools because the director has already got the idea that they want this sort of music. Temp track is the word I'm looking for. And they'll, they'll, they'll give you the rush, uh, the film, with the temp track. And they say, write, write music that sounds like that against it. And that, Speak, speaking that's about the, a lot of it. Uh, temp track, Houston, I've heard of uh, composers writing, say, I don't know, 50 hours of music and then it was just cut to five minutes because the director decided he wanted to put the temp track in but yep, at the end of right. the day 
isn't the composer still getting paid his fee? I'm assuming he or she is still getting paid. Um, You'd the, have uh, I think the the film, the, one of the famous films, I think there's, I think Pulp Fiction, mm. is that um, that the director was so in a, enamored of the score he couldn't improve on it, so he used the old pieces. But I'd imagine there'd be time. Yeah, you you're paid for the time that you spend working on the piece. It was a um, 2000... unless you got a really hot shot. 2001 Space Odyssey with uh, Alex North and all his music got cut from the uh, movie and he showed up to the premiere as well. It must have been very awkward, that. Well, that happens to actors as well. Wow. Um, and it happens to actors. I've got a friend who's just, just, post, just posted on Facebook every scene she just did for a new something or other that was being broadcast this or released, a new film being released now every scene every word that she did has been cut oh dear she's not in the film at all um i had a small amount of work in a, in a bollywood movie um that it overran its time and the scene i was in was cut mm. <laughs> i still got paid yeah i still got paid but um it doesn't do an awful lot for your professional reputation mm -hmm. There's not much you can do, I yeah. guess. There's nothing. It's not your. That's that's the thing you take on when, when you, you you take on film. You take on everybody else's wishes rather than your own. Mm. And if you want to have 100% the 100% Stephen Channel, the 100% Houston Channel, you just do it yourself. Mm. Now, with film with film composers, uh, say they wrote all that music and it's got cut. Do you still own it or not, or is it the film? I believe so. Yeah, I, I believe so. That's still your mu music. I mean, no one's using it. And can you, unless there's something in your contract that says otherwise? And can you put on like Spotify and uh, publish it? Oh, I, I, that that's something that uh, you'd have you'd have to talk to a legal person. But as far as I'm concerned, mm -hmm. if you own the copyright, you could put it on Spotify. I'm sure, but that would depend entirely on on um, what your contract is. Mm. Because you don't see a lot of composers, they don't publish unrele un unreleased works a lot mm -hmm. of the time. I think they should do that, like publish works that weren't made into the film, be able to perform that. I, I imagine so, but they might be hanging, it might be on the, we've all got a bottom drawer mm. with, um, with spare music in it. <laughs> and when, and uh, when, when a chance for a quick turnaround happens, you just oh, I may have something here, and you just, um, here's here try this. Um, a composer who shall remain nameless, because it wasn't me, but was in a concert that I was. I had a piece done in. It was all about um, Hans Christian Andersen, mm. and I wrote a brand new piece for this concert um, called "With Eyes as Big." It was a it was a way of telling the story about about the soldier coming back from the war and in each he meets three dogs with eyes as big as i think saucers with eyes as big as dinner plates with eyes as big as windmills mm. so each one was a kind of a portrait of the dog mm. in sound uh one of the other composers um wrote had a piece performed called the little mermaid dances or the mermaid's waltz and it was a waltz and uh it was from a little drew a little too heavily on the Disney version of the film, I think. Um, but 
because in 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 the Hans Christian Andersen, she actually has an extremely painful time walking or dancing because she's dancing on the end of her little fish legs. But it was just a pretty waltz, mm. and it was called the Mermaid Dancers or something like that. And I looked, I caught a look at the music because it it wasn't um, it wasn't done on finale or surveillance. It was actually handwritten. Mm-hmm. And there was another title on every page that had been scrubbed out that had something to do with Vienna mm. and uh, the new title put in. So he'd just taken a waltz, grabbed the piece, scrubbed the title out, put the new title on. There you go. There's the mm. piece in the bottom drawer. And uh, we've all done that. We've all got that. Maybe mm. not as a complete piece, but um, ideas and, and bits that you can develop into other things. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, as far as being a composer, um, have you ever been in Hollywood? Uh, the closest I've ever got was the University of Southern California um, Film Music School, mm-hmm. uh, where I went to visit one of my students who got a scholarship there. But no, I've never done I've never done anything with do with Hollywood. I doubt if I would. I've been in LA a few times. I have a few actor friends, but uh, I, I, the film music film music is not something that that uh, attracts my interest perhaps because my ego is too large um but it's not that i collaborate well and i don't want to collaborate with people mm. i just don't want to lose my identity i think you know the the music that john williams for example writes as johnny as john williams the composer versus john williams the film composer they used to be poles apart and now they're very very similar mm. and uh i think there's there's certain there are certain things that I don't want I wouldn't want to lose and that would be my musical identity and I think mm-hmm. I would lose that if I was heavily involved in that kind of film. Mm-hmm. Well, look, look, talk about Hans Zimmer. He's playing very simple stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not very hard to play. I don't think he's a trained classical musician, but yet he's got. A um, lot, I don't. Lot of- I don't remember. I know he was, he started life as a keyboard player in a band called the Monitors. Mm. And they had a, they had a a big hit called Video Killed the Radio Star. Mm. And I think he was the keyboard player in that. Um, He is a very good businessman. He knows what sells. He also surrounds himself with extremely fine players. And that's, that's a good talent to be able to find talent. I have a friend who's one of his, he's his cellist. Mm. and you know they a lot of that is there's there's action there's drama there's there's a lot of there's a lot of atmosphere in the music he writes and like most film composers someone else can do some of the arrangements with him not he doesn't do all the orchestration mm. but it i think I, I i wouldn't put him wouldn't put him down too much for being successful as he is um he's even managed to get onto this one of these online education courses Mm. Uh, where you can actually learn about film music composition from him. Mm. Um, it's expensive, but um, it, it, it's something that he clearly knows a lot about. Mm. And uh, he, he uses his knowledge and uh, good luck to him. I think it's, I think it's life is a little bit too short to, to worry about somebody else's success compared to your own. Mm. Uh, you only need to think about what success means to you. Um, and if success is having for your fellow musicians appreciate what you do, 
come to play for you and play your music without being begged. Um, and that music goes over the way you want it to. That's really all. That's really all I want. Mm -hmm. uh, the the the, re the rebound from the audience is less important, except for the fact that very often, if you get all of that stuff that I just mentioned right, the rebound from the audience, no matter how the music sounds to the ear, no matter how unfamiliar it is, it's usually fairly positive. Mm -hmm. They pick up on, an audience will pick up on joyful music making. And uh, that could mean anything, but they will pick up on the fact that music is, the music that they are hearing is a joy to make, no matter how difficult it sounds, no matter how dissonant it might be, no matter what, that the people up there making music that maybe they don't understand. And an audience will pick up on that. Mm. And, and and celebrate it. And what what inspires you to write a concerto? Because they're so they they take a long time. A concerto is is, is usually, if the word is inspired is correct, um, it's usually a response to a great player, mm. somebody I want to write for. Mm -hmm. um, so the Viology concerto was written for a guy called Brett Dubner. Uh, he's, he's performed it a number of times and did that amazing recording. The uh, tuba concerto is written for a guy called Alan Bear, who's the principal tuba of the New York Philharmonic. Uh, the euphonium concerto is written for um, Matt Van Emmerich. He's one of the best viol, uh, euphonium players in the world. Um, the piano concerto was written in memory of Roger Frampton. That's one of the few that I haven't had a, a specific artist in, in mind for. Um, violin concerto was written for Susan Collins, who's at Tassie Club. So there's, I would say almost entirely it's to do with a person who plays in a fabulous way. Mm. And you want to be part of that. Um, there was a, a lot of, lot of talk going around earlier this last week after that young woman who recited the poem at Biden's inauguration and someone that I've in my close in my circle of, of Twitter friends said, um, "Gosh, we're all going to be lining up wanting to set her music, uh, set her words now." Mm. And it's and that's true. You, you as a composer, you see someone or you hear someone who is superb at what they do, and you think, "I I I want to be part of that. I want to be with them. Mm. I want I want to make music with them. I want to make my art with them." because it's it's such a joy to collaborate with people like that mm. so for yeah. me it's it's the concerto idea when when i do write a concerto and i mean i write many more things other than concerto but every concerto has been for a specific person mm. Mm -hmm. and most of the other work that i do is for a specific person too mm -hmm. i must say that um i have particular people who will play my music because they like it or because they like me or something and so therefore that, that that tends to allow certain instruments to, to stand out in my repertoire of pieces um and the piano piano flute clarinet um orchestra that's the sort of that's the, that's the people i know and love and that they'll they're the ones who want to play my music mm. 
Mm. There's no French horn concerto there because no, no French horn player has ever come up to me and said, I think you're really cool. Write me a piece. Um, <laughs> 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 um, so that, that's, you know, a few trumpet players have, but that's fine. Mm. No, that's amazing. But, and uh, yeah, no, it's it's great to uh, do that. How long do your concertos go for? Oh, again, that's how long is a piece of string. Mm. How long does a piece need to go for? A lot of concertos uh, the, are like an hour, hour long, three movements usually. Um, an hour long concerto would probably be very difficult to perform because I think you'd be exhausted. Mm. Um, my viola concerto is about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tuba concerto is 21. Mm-hmm. That's the longest. Um, the euphonium concerto, I couldn't tell you how long it's going to be. The first movement was six and a half minutes long. Mm-hmm. So it's probably going to be between 15 and 20 minutes. That, I think, is an ideal length for something like that because you're asking somebody to put a huge amount of work in for every every minute. I mean, big pieces like the Bussoni Piano Concerto in five movements and it lasts for 45 minutes. They are the rare ones, mm-hmm. and there's a, and and that means that very few people will actually perform them. You've got to strike a balance between what you think you'll if you get the piece in the air at all. And it's mm-hmm. hard enough to get a piece. It's hard enough to get a piece with three notes in it in the air as it is to three thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to try and get it in the air and 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 playing at all, then you you need to make sure that that is possible. If if play if getting something performed is important to you, then you must remove barriers to make sure that it gets performed. And one of the barriers is you need a 10 minute piece. Hey, I've written a 25 minute piece for you. There you go, that's more mm-hmm. than you wanted, but I've only got 10 minutes on the program. So a concerto lasting between 10 and 20 minutes is ideal in a three piece program because they're wanting to hear a short orchestral work to begin with, maybe a Haydn symphony that might be 25 minutes, then your concerto, which is 20 minutes, and then 20 minutes in the, in the, in the, in the lounge at the front having a drink, and then a 40-minute big work at the end. Mm. And that's, that's a good night. That's a big night. Um, most concerts are now looking at no more than 90 minutes per, of music mm. uh, for, um, for a concert. I mean, I, I say that because I'm a, I'm a conductor as well. And you know, if I ask somebody, I say, look, I really need it to be this length of time if you're writing me a new work. And if they write me something that's really large, I, I can't do it because I've got commitments to all these others. And I think as a composer, you should be able to have the discipline to say what you need to say within a particular amount of time. If you want to write a novel, but all you've got to be, all you're given is a Twitter post, um, then you write the Twitter post and you get to say what the novel says in the Twitter, mm-hmm. in the tweet, I should say. There's a lot of self-discipline involved. I wanted to talk about social media and uh, music these days. We, yep. we have, we got uh, twi- Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, <laughs> TikTok. Mm-hmm. What do you prefer most? Because I know you're on Twitter. I've got it as well. How do you find Twitter? Yep. Um, I find it a very good way to digest a lot of material mm-hmm. very quickly. Um, 
if you're looking for deep analysis, you're not going to get it on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But you are going to get the points that people are trying to make. And I'm not one who censors people who make opposite points to me or who believe in different things to me. I think that's wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I think I need to know what other people think. Uh, I will censor them and cut them out if they are rude and vile. <clears throat> but that's if they've got ideas that are contrary to mine, I won't cut them for that. Mm -hmm. I'll still listen. Uh, so I do like Twitter for that reason. But if you're wanting deep analysis, there's plenty of other ways of doing that. Mm. Um, going on to just reading online journals and contributing to online forums and so on. Um, Facebook and so on is, I've always thought was good for two things. One is catching up with people. The other was getting work. Mm -hmm. um, my first real concerto came about from a Facebook friendship. It's the most incredible piece of Facebook I've ever done. Facebook, mm -hmm. I should say. Um, and I think every one of them has a, <clears throat> has a use and therefore a weakness. Um, I tend to look at Instagram as a way of documenting things that I, that maybe take a lot more words mm. than I have, or even may take words that I cannot summon. And I don't use it very often. Um, and they're generally, it's generally to, to announce things or to let things be, be, be out there in the in the public that I don't need to then talk on. If somebody wants to talk about it, they can start that chat conversation privately. Mm. But uh, yeah, Facebook is a, is a good way of going into a longer discourse, um, and in that way, it provides. I think for me, it provides a combination of <clears throat> discourse and video mm. that um, I'm quite happy with. Mm. I don't think I need to do more than those three. I don't have time. I've got to write music. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, what I found with my company, Shields Productions, focusing on Instagram and Facebook uh, for music, I think it's better. I've got the Twitter page, but don't get enough traffic with Twitter. Do you find you get a lot of lot of traffic on your Twitter? I get enough. <laughs> uh, Twitter, Twitter for me is not so much a... Is, and I use it for a certain specific, I use it as a place not to talk about my professional life, mm -hmm. but to talk about the things I believe in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so therefore, you know, I'll sit there and sometimes I'll say a particular thing and over, over the next five minutes, 20 people will go, yeah, and then one person will go, yeah. And that person <laughs> will think, well, you know, why did you do that? And I'll engage with that person. And then they'll insult you and then you cut them. But mm -hmm. once they start to insult you, but um, I block them, I should say. But no, I get a fair bit of, I've got two Facebook pages. One is a personal one and there's a professional. I call them the personal and the professional and mm -hmm. they meld. Um, and Instagram is a kind of a, where everything else fits that doesn't fit mm -hmm. in those two. And I don't really worry too much about traffic, to be honest, because uh, I've also got a website. And what I really need is a social media person who could keep up with all of that, because mm. I found if I was doing my social media accounts 
with the kind of um, detail and that they needed, I wouldn't be able to do anything else. Mm. I wouldn't actually be able to uh, to create any content. Mm. And uh, to me, the most important thing is writing music, is performing, whether I'm performing as an artist, or as, as, as a musician or as an actor or as a singer. Um, those things, those are the most important things to me. And they'll always be more important than social media. Mm. As somebody once said to me, the performance is always more important than the documentation of the performance. And the only comeback to that is unless the documentation has been used for a grants application. Mm. But very often it's not. Uh, you always the performance is the thing. Mm. That's always it. about that. That's the sacred right. Recording of it is not. Do you find uh, word of mouth is always better? I think it's an it's an old cliche that word of mouth is the best, but I think it's still true. Mm. Um, word of mouth is becoming less less common. I think people will will take their word of mouth and they'll stick it on their Twitter feed. Or they'll put it on their Facebook feed. So I think there's a certain, I mean, there are other things that you find out on these uh, that you don't realize have happened, such as tonight. Um, I've forgotten all about a particular thing that's happening in South Melbourne that I'm going, I'm going to go see tonight. But the only reason I, I remembered it was because somebody put it up on Facebook this morning. But, oh, yeah, right. I've got to go to that. Now you're in so, Melbourne. Um, you went mm -hmm. into the stage four lockdown, and I'm in Sydney. You had to wear masks all the time. And yes, it was a thousand dollar fine. They brought in a restriction here: you have to wear a mask in the shop if you don't. It's a two hundred dollar fine in Sydney. That's been lifted today, by the way. Oh, oh, <laughs> That's been, yep. Now, when today, you went in, your premier, your premier lifted it today. When you went into stage four lockdown, how did you how did you cope being in the second lockdown? Oh, the second lockdown it was lockdown for me because in this part of Melbourne, mm. we started actually quite early. We we're in March. We had an early lockdown, mm. selected postcodes. <clears throat> there was only about two weeks off in the middle, and I emerged from those two weeks into the Melbourne traffic and went, "Oh, I much preferred lockdown." Mm. <laughs> But lockdown for me, I took up, um, I took away a lot of online teaching. Mm -hmm. I happened to live right near the Maribyrnong River. So there's a lot of pleasant walks um, and so on. Um, but there were, there were other things that were less pleasant, such as being unable to see people. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite gregarious. Um, but I sat down and wrote music. There's quite a bit of music. I wrote a, a series of songs um, for a, a soprano, mental soprano called Sally Ann Russell. Mm. And they're called uh, Songs My Lockdown Taught Me. Mm -hmm. um, so th there was quite a, bit of, quite a bit of music created during that time. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the way I'd survived probably the best. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, um, I was doing a lot of preparation for another little project that finally happened around November where I was starting to emerge and uh, starting up a career as a stand-up comic. Nice. And so that's, in fact, where I'm going to go hear some people tonight. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that, um, that I'll be, I've been looking to do is finding new ways to express myself. 
Mm. Yeah, it's um, how's how's restrictions in Melbourne? Is it slowly getting back to normal? Oh, it's actually fairly good. We we still have our masks in shops and so on, but um, it it's pretty much there's very little um in the way of, of the of the draconian restrictions and i use that term as light visibly that were happening um downtown melbourne is a little quiet because mm. not a lot of people have actually returned to their office work yet but a lot of people are actually still working mm. um they're working from home mm. and it's actually i i think this particular experience for all of us will be such that we realize we don't actually need to turn up to the office all that often. Maybe we should be working from home. As long as stuff gets done, why not? Mm. Um, what's going to happen to all that vacant office space? Well, there's an instant, there's, to, there's an instant solve to the homeless problem. Mm. Um, there's, there's, a, there's, there's something I think really good needs to come out of all of this. And what we do as people and the way we organize ourselves as people is one of those things. Things are still getting built. There's a construction site all around me here as they're building all these new apartments. Things are still happening. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you just pop a mask on, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. um, shop, shops are open. Restaurants are, are open. You can't stand uh, shoulder to shoulder and elbow to elbow in them, but you can be part of the uh, experience of dining and going out and just just be careful mm. and we've been very careful here in Victoria we've had a lot of non-infectious days and I think I'd much rather be around and see my friends around and healthy than see them once and they have to go to their funerals. Have you known anyone who had uh, COVID-19? Yes. And what did they say about it? Was it, a, is it bad or is it? It's varied. Uh, one or two have died. Yep. Um, others have said it's the worst thing they've ever had and lived. Mm. Um, and these are young, not necessarily older people. Mm. Uh, I was just in touch with a friend in Colorado who said yeah, she had it. And she said it was probably the worst thing she's ever had. She'd be in her early thirties. Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. So, now, the thing about our particularly strict lockdown here in Victoria, once it got going, <clears throat> not a lot of people actually caught it. Mm. And that left a, a real rift. People say, oh, well, now we're just catching it while we have these lockdowns. Well, actually, you can also look at it the other way, which is that we're having these lockdowns. That's why nobody's actually catching it. Mm. That's why, the, that's why the, the, the cases went down. And you can't let your foot off the accelerator. Uh, when you when you escape when you're running away from trouble, I've heard and so uh, people were people were people were benefiting from the lockdowns. That's for sure. Uh, the COVID nineteen, you can have it and have no symptoms, which is that's correct. Weird. I believe so. Yeah, and which is why testing was so important. Adults have picked it up from little babies who just have a slight mm -hmm. runny nose. That's weird. Yeah. Well, I I, I don't know. Um, Above, above and beyond anecdotal evidence about that, um, I'm not a frontline health worker. What I see is um, frontline health workers in particular, the ones that, because I've got a lot of family in Britain and seeing them just, just 
collapse with 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 emotional exhaustion as well as everything else mm. means that you know people are the, the people who are denying that it exists and who are denying the efficacy of what's going on um they they deserve they deserve a couple of hours on the front lines mm. and masked up and vaccinated maybe but they need to see what's going on well, speaking about a vaccine ho- hoping to get one in march this year yes i believe actually i heard february recently so yeah. but see this there's two, and there a Pfizer vaccine and a AstraZeneca. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> would you be skeptical about taking a vaccine straight away, or would you wait till they improve it? Well, I don't know what you mean by improve it. Um, if it's got, if it's pretty much 100, it's pretty much improved. Mm. Um, That's just I, my opinion. I'm a, um, I'm a um, type one insulin dependent diabetic. Mm-hmm. Which means I'm in a high risk group, mm. and uh, I would be fairly early on, I'd imagine, being offered it, and I would say yes. Uh, partly because not so much from self-preservation, but if it stops me from passing it on to somebody, then sign me up. Mm-hmm. I think it's just as important that not only are you prepared and you're you're preserved. But you stop other people from being sick, and that's the reason for masks. Mm-hmm. The mask is not there just to keep you safe, but it's there to reduce the risk you have of passing it on to someone else. Mm-hmm. And if you're both wearing masks, and now I believe the um, Dr. Fauci in in America, the head of infectious diseases his task force, is now calling for double masking. Put two masks on, mm-hmm. and that makes more sense. It makes perfectly perfectly good sense. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just you that's out there. It's all of your family. It's all the, everybody else's family, mm. the rest of society. And we're all in danger. Mm. And, uh, you know, we need to learn that we're all in this together. The reason why I say that Houston, because vaccines usually, usually take three to four years to develop properly. Um, now they're trying to push one out in about a year as well. And you've got to be careful of side effects too. I'm not an expert, so I won't comment. Yeah. Um, because um, there have been a lot of tests run on this. Um, the FDA, uh, sorry, the um, FDA in America and the therapeutic good TGA here in Australia have all tested it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we go with these people for everything else. Um, so why not, why, why not this one? Mm-hmm. Um, this was a, a major important initiative. Mm. Um, and I think most people are saying, why are we waiting so long until February before we get it? And, and, uh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not an expert, so I can't comment. No, that's on fair enough. That sort of yeah. stuff. But I don't know how they're going to vaccinate everyone. Are they going to send a letter in the mail? Or are they going to make it mandatory? That's, that's... Uh, no. I don't think they can make it mandatory, and I, I don't. Again, I don't know. Mm. Really, the thing that that that, that um, I would imagine is you could you do it through your GP mm-hmm. um, and other other people. <laughs> Somebody joked this: you give it to Amazon, give all the uh, training to Amazon delivery drivers. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that uh, when they turn up, they can give you an, they can give you a vaccine because mm. they're everywhere. Mm. Um, but no, I, I, I'd, I'd be looking for through my GP to find out about that. My GP is very good. Mm. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Well, let's hope that you know it all. It all, it all covers us all, and that we get to the point where we become we can push this one aside and on to the next one. Mm, yeah. Cause there, there will be another pandemic again. Oh, that's no doubt. Yes. I think there was a professor been, a couple, a couple years ago was uh, talking about a, I don't know, I forgot, did a lecture and he said, we, we, we're going to have another pandemic sooner or later. Yeah. I think you think, right. I think you're talking about a, a Barack Obama who mm. said the same thing. Hmm. And that's why he set up the pandemic task force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it'll happen. I mean, you look at human history, and and there's there's been there've been diseases that sweep through that we've never encountered before. Mm. Uh, whether you know, my, my parents were victims of the diphtheria epidemic in the 30s and 40s mm. in the UK. Um, I was a victim of the mumps, measles, rubella. Um, plague that happened in Europe in the early 60s mm. I got all of them um, and they've left me with weak eyes and you know things that you don't expect mm. uh, a lot of kids died because of it so there's there's always the Spanish flu in the 1980s more 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 dramatically killed more people than who died in World War one mm. everything back to the Black Death and beyond you know, Black Death was 1348. So going back even further than that, there have been massive maladies that have swept through human society Mm. and it's going to keep happening. And we just, that's why we have to uh, trust and invest in our, in our medical system and our medical practitioners, because they will, they are the only ones who can be counted on to help us out. Mm. We I need just to pay hope, them more. Just hope the vaccine will work. That's it. That's all I'm saying. Well, I, I can't. There's, 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 I guess we'll find out, but I, I can't imagine why it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Houston, fantastic show with you today. Uh, what, nice to talk to you. Where can people find you on your social media website? Where, where are you? Oh, it tends to be the same, really. It's just houstondunleavy.com mm-hmm. is my website. And I'm in the same on, on Twitter, Instagram, it's just the same, just my name. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no reason to be, to, to hide behind anything fancy when you've already got a, a weird name. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, that'll be on Instagram, Twitter. Um, and my, uh, what's the other one? Facebook. Mm-hmm. So just, just do a search on my own, my name. Sweet. That's easily found. 